This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. following episode may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and references some extreme sexual assault and graphic violence. It is intended for mature listeners and discretion is strongly advised. Slay utterly, old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Ezekiel 9.6 At the end of a quiet street in Villisca, Iowa, there sits an old white frame house. Up the street there are a group of churches, and a few blocks away is a park that faces a middle school. The town is ordinary. The old white house looks like many others in the neighborhood, but unlike them, it lies abandoned. The house emits no light or sound, and upon closer inspection, the doors are found to be tightly boarded up. A sign out front reads, The Villisca Axe Murder House. Despite its ominous air, the little white home was once filled with life, life that was harshly stamped out one warm summer's night in 1912, when a mysterious stranger broke into the home and viciously bludgeoned its eight sleeping inhabitants to death. The event would come to be known as the Villisca Axe Murders, and it would baffle law enforcement for over a century. On June 10, 1912, the Moore family was sleeping peacefully in their beds. Joe and Sarah Moore were asleep upstairs, while their four children were resting in a room just down the hall. In a guest room on the first floor were two girls, the Stillinger sisters, who had come for a sleepover. Shortly after midnight, a stranger entered through the unlocked door, not an uncommon sight in what was considered to be a small, safe and friendly town, and plucked an oil lamp from a nearby table, rigging it to burn so low it supplied light for barely one person. On one hand, the stranger held the lamp, lighting his way through the house. In his other, he held an axe. Throughout the ages... Man has repeated the same earnest saying, more of a question, really, or perhaps even a plea, if these walls could talk. But what if they do, and always have? Perhaps their stories, memories, and messages are all around us, if only we would take the moment to listen. On this podcast, we reinvestigate legends and tales of the past and allow the echoes of their lessons to live on once again, informing us, educating us, and sharing new and unique insight into the inner workings of the paranormal and spiritual world. Will you dare to listen? This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast.
Ignoring the sleeping girls downstairs, the stranger made his way up, guided by the lamp and a seemingly unerring knowledge of the home's layout. He crept past the room with the children and into Mr. and Mrs. Moore's bedroom. Then he made his way to the children's room and finally back down to the bedroom downstairs. This is Jeremy from the editing room and I hate to interrupt us so soon, but I need you to listen to something. When I went to edit this audio for the intro, there's a clip that you are about to hear that I'm going to play unedited. In the background, you can hear the voice of a child. I am sitting here with my cat sound asleep next to me. My dog is in the other room. There is nothing in this room that could have made this noise, but I want you to catch this unexplained EVP in the following clip. Okay, let's continue. In each room, he committed one of... Let's amplify that real quick. I have absolutely no explanation for what that sound is or where it came from, but it sure does sound like a child crying, doesn't it? Let's continue with our story. In each room that this person entered, he committed some of the grisliest murders in American history. Then... As quickly and silently as he had arrived, the stranger left, taking keys from the home and locking the door behind him. The Velisca axe murders may have been quick, but as the world was about to discover, they were unimaginably horrifying. In the early 1900s, Velisca, Iowa, a Midwestern town of 2,500 people, was flourishing. It was also considered to be a completely safe place to live. Everybody knew everybody and looked out for one another, so it was unusual to lock your doors. Villisca was also a dry town, meaning the sale and consumption of alcohol was prohibited, eliminating a lot of the chaos that usually followed alcoholism, and didn't even contribute to the events that would follow. Businesses lined the street and several dozen trains pulled into the depot on a daily basis. According to D.N. Smith, a Chicago-Burlington-Quincy Railroad employee, Villisca meant pretty place, or pleasant view. Or did it? In 1912, the town built the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa. The company housed there participated in the 1916 Mexican Expedition, World War I and World War II, as well as the Korean and Vietnam Wars. During World War II, Montgomery County lost more men per capita than any other county in the United States. Velisca surely contributed several of their own to that number. Unfortunately for the citizens of this close-knit community, however, these accomplishments will be forever overshadowed by the horrific deaths of eight of their own. On June 10th, 1912, the tranquility of this, quote, pretty place was shattered by the discovery of the Velisca Axe murders. The Moore family, well-known and well-liked Velisca residents, and two overnight guests were found murdered in their beds. Little known to its residents was the possibility that their town was named not after a pretty place, but the indigenous word Waliska, which means evil spirit. 97 years later, the unsolved murders remain a part of Velisca's past that continues to haunt its future. While several of Villisca's historic buildings have been demolished, the Axe Murder House, as it is known, has been placed on the National Registry of Historic Buildings. Owners Darwin and Martha Lynn have returned the home to its original condition and hope that renewed interest in the mystery may somehow help Villisca heal her wounds and rejuvenate her economy.
Josiah B. Moore, sometimes called Joseph or Joe, was one of Aliska's most well-known and prominent businessmen. At the time of his death, he was 43 years old. Josiah married Sarah Montgomery on December 6th of 1899 at the home of her parents. Josiah and Sarah Moore had four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. Josiah had been a resident of Aliska for 13 years and was employed at one point by Frank Jones at the Jones store before going on to set up his own farming equipment business, J.M. Moore Implement Company, where he would sell and rent farming equipment to people in town. He was especially well known because he carried John Deere products, which was a vendor account he had brought over from his time working for Frank Jones' store and caused a significant amount of tension between their businesses but we'll come back to that later. Joe was cheerful, well-liked, and a man who, in the words of the Iowa Attorney General, quote, was at peace with everybody. Sarah Moore, born Montgomery, was born in Knox County, Illinois in 1873, and moved to Iowa with her parents, Mr. and Mrs. John Montgomery, and her sister Mary in approximately 1894. She was 39 years old and the mother of their four children when she was also murdered in her bed. Sarah was a well-respected and active member of the local Presbyterian church. Overall, no one had anything bad to say about Josiah. They were good parents, cared for their farm and children, kept a clean and tidy home, and her father-in-law remarked on the stand about how clean and well taken care of her children always were. Among the suspects immediately after the murders was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder, the ex-husband of Sarah's sister, Mary. Van Gilder had a few previous brushes with law enforcement and was known to be prone to violence. Although he and his wife had divorced, there was apparently enough bad blood between the two for him to be a suspect. He was later cleared. Herman, the eldest of the Moore children, was born in 1901 and was 11 years old at the time of his death. It was said that Herman was quite his father's son and was often seen at his side. Catherine, born just two years after Herman in 1903, was ten years old when she died. The Stillinger sisters, Lena and Ina, were close friends, and it was at Catherine's request that they spent the night with the Moore family on June 9, 1912. Boyd and Paul were the youngest Moore children, aged seven and five respectively at the time of their murders. Only one photograph of the two boys has ever been presented. The photographs shown were obviously taken when the boys were much younger than they were at the time of their deaths in 1912. Lena Gertrude Stillinger and her sister, Ina May, were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger, and were the only people in the house that were not a part of the Moore family. They had spent the night with the family after attending a church program the night before. Both girls were born on the Stillinger family farm just outside of Aliska. Lena and Ina Stillinger left their home for church early Sunday morning. They had planned on having dinner with their grandmother after the morning service, spending the afternoon with her, and then returning to their home to spend the night after the Children's Day exercises concluded. The girls, however, were invited by Catherine Moore to spend the night at the Moore home instead. Prior to leaving for the exercises, Mr. Moore placed a call to the Stillinger home to ask permission for the girls to stay overnight. Blanche, Lena and Ina's older sister, told Mr. Moore that her parents were both outdoors, but that she would pass the message along to them, a decision that I'm sure plagued the family for the rest of their lives. 
Lena was 12 years old when she was murdered, and from the position of her body, it was concluded that she was the only victim that had attempted to fight off her attacker. Many experts have also suggested that Lena was the victim of some type of sexual molestation by her killer. Ina was eight at the time of her death. Ina May and Lena had seven surviving siblings, Edith, Ed, Lester, David, Blanche, Ralph, and Ada Lou. The Stillinger sisters were buried side by side in the Villisca Cemetery. Films and books on the murders have recently captured the interest of an audience who had perhaps never heard of this horrendous crime before. Psychics claimed they've identified the murderer, and history buffs continue collecting piles of documents they say point to the truth. In all honesty, though, we will never know what happened on that dark night inside the home of J.B. and Sarah Moore. The murderer or murderers were never caught, and given the many years that have passed, their dark secret was obviously carried with them to their graves. For some, the speculation was almost too much to bear, and, in 1912, the townspeople began to distinguish and identify themselves by who they believed committed the crime. Friendships became strained, and in many cases, irrevocably broken. The town stood then, and in many cases, still stands divided. June 9th and June 10th, 1912. Let's set the scene of the night of the murders. On June 9th, every single one of the street lamps in Villisca were off on this one particular night, and for an absolutely crazy reason. The town council was apparently involved in a knockdown drag-out war with the Villisca Public Service Company, who was in charge of providing the power for the street lamps. For months, the battle raged on, even making it all the way to court, because the town wanted better lights for the area at night. Replacement lamps, updated utility poles, additional lights, all reasonable requests if you ask me. But the light company refused. Ironically, on the night of the murders, it all came to a head when the public service company decided to stick it to the citizens of Villisca and shut off their street lamps entirely. Villisca was plunged into a medieval darkness, only known by those who have found themselves down perhaps a dark county road in the countryside somewhere. It was profoundly and eerily pitch black, and certainly adds to the eeriness of what would eventually take place on this night. It is also believed that because of this darkness, the public service company inadvertently provided the opportunity for the murderer to creep through the town unseen, and wouldn't be turned back on until the following Monday. Some have even gone as far as to suggest that the idea of the murders themselves was suggested or pursued by employees of the public service company to prove a point to the town about how necessary they were to peace and stability. But this theory is widely far-fetched, if you ask me, based on what we will come to find out as we continue on into the details of this case. Sometime after midnight, an individual entered the Moore family home by an unlocked door, again, not a strange occurrence in Villisca. It was clear that the murderer had spent some time casing the property outdoors, and came across the family axe, either in the shed on the property or right outside of it. He selected this as his weapon, and entered the farmhouse of the sleeping family. The murderer then selected a kerosene oil lamp from the kitchen, and removed the glass chimney which protected the flame, and placed it either under a chair or a dresser, 
found later in the bedroom of Josiah and Sarah Moore. But the murderer didn't stop there. He then proceeded to split the wick of the flame in two down the middle to allow it to cast an even dimmer light as he proceeded through the home. The murderer set off on his mission through the house, ignoring the downstairs bedroom immediately off the kitchen where Ina and Lena lay sleeping. He proceeded directly up the stairs to where the parents lay instead. The following morning at approximately 5 a.m., Mary Peckham, the Moore's next-door neighbor, stepped into her yard to hang laundry. Mary was in her early 60s and extremely close with the Moore family. The neighborhood consisted of lots of farms and animals, so it was extremely common for households to rise very early in the morning to begin caring for their own little utopias, milk the cows, let out the chickens, and care for their livestock. By 7 a.m., as Mary continued caring for her own property, she slowly began to realize that not only had the moors not been outside nor the chores began, but that the house itself seemed unusually and eerily still. The curtains were still drawn, and there was no light or movement within the house. Usually, by now, the children would be up and beginning the day, laughing and playing, but today there was nothing at all. Mary could tell that the horses, cows, and animals were beginning to get restless and a little concerned as well, since their daily routine was not going as planned. The Moors usually took excellent care of their farm early in the morning, so Mary knew immediately something very strange was going on. She had gone to bed the night before at approximately 8pm and did not see the family return from their church exercises that night. According to her testimony, Mrs. Peckham heard absolutely no noises from the house during the night. Between 7 and 8 a.m., Mary Peckham approached the house and knocked on the door. When she received no response, she attempted to open the door only to find it locked from the inside. Perplexed, she began doing what any good neighbor would do. She began taking care of their chores for them, all the while wondering and worrying about what was going on within the home. Now, the Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church the night before that the Moore family had attended, along with Lena and Ina, was an annual event held at their church and had began at approximately 8pm on Sunday evening, June 9th. According to witnesses, Sarah Moore coordinated and led the majority of the exercises, including songs and Bible studies. The program ended at 9.30pm and the Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked home from the church. Reportedly, they re-entered their home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. By 8 a.m. the following morning, the Stillinger parents were also beginning to get concerned, as they had not heard from their daughters or any member of the Moore family yet that morning to check in after the sleepover. It was very odd for them not to have called yet that morning to determine when the kids would be picked up and to confirm that everything was going okay. Sarah Stillinger called the family home and didn't get an answer, something that was remarked upon as strange as everyone else answered their phone in these days, especially as everyone was getting up and going for the morning. After letting out the Moore family's chickens, Mary, the neighbor who was getting more and more concerned by the minute, placed a call to Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, setting into place one of the most mismanaged murder investigations to ever be undertaken. Ross, too, was immediately concerned upon hearing from Mary as well, and decided to call Josiah's business headquarters, the J.B. Moore Implement Company, which was answered by one of his employees named Ed Seeley. 
Ed also remarked upon how he was concerned that they had not heard yet from Josiah that day, as he was expected to be at work hours ago. Ed, his employee, decided to walk over to the house first to assist Mary in completing the household chores and to see the strange situation for himself. Upon also finding the door locked, he decided to return to the store to ensure someone was there for the business. Next, Ross Moore, Josiah's brother, decided to come to the home too to see for himself. Upon arriving at the house, Ross Moore attempted to look in the bedroom window and then knocked on the door and shouted, attempting to raise attention from someone within the house. When that failed, he produced his own key and found one that happened to open the door, not particularly uncommon for keyholes of the time. Although Mary Peckham followed him onto the porch, she did not enter the parlor. Upon entering the home, Ross noticed that every single curtain in the house was drawn, and someone had taken the time to add additional sheets and blankets to block any light from entering the property. Someone had clearly taken the time to make sure that the property was unnaturally dark inside. Ross decided to go no further than the guest bedroom off the parlor. When he opened the door to the bedroom, he immediately remarked on what he determined to be the smell of death, wafting about the house by the warm air still inside. He then saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the sheets. He returned to the porch immediately and told Mary Peckham to call the sheriff. Sitting down and putting his head in his hands, he remarked out loud, Something terrible has happened here. The two bodies in the room downstairs were Lena Stillinger, aged 12, and her sister Ina, aged 8, the house guests of the Moore children. The remaining members of the Moore family were found in the upstairs bedrooms by City Marshal Hank Horton, who arrived on the scene shortly. Every person in the house had been brutally murdered, their skulls crushed in as they slept. City Marshal Hank Horton, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in the town, was definitely the right person to call for this kind of tragic event. However, he was woefully unprepared for anything remotely similar to this case. Velisca had rarely experienced a homicide, let alone a mass-axe murder. His role in the town was more to keep the peace and had little experience with anything of this sort before. He didn't even have to deal with drunks or bar fights being a dry town. When Horton entered the property, he began opening the curtains to let light in and survey the gruesome scene, unveiling the blood that had splattered, coating the walls, floors, and ceiling of nearly every room in the home. He took special care not to disturb the bodies or remove the coverings so as not to tamper with the evidence. He immediately was able to determine the murder weapon right there in the first-floor guest room leaning against the wall. The bloody, rusty axe had a distinct nick to the blade, which allowed Ross, Josiah's brother, to identify it as belonging to the household now deceased inside. The axe was very blunt, and while still covered in blood, hair, and flesh, it was clear that some effort had been made to clean it off prior to the murderer's departure. It should be noted, then, that this murderer arrived to the home of the Moors without a weapon, or even a light. Why? Was he not planning to kill every person in the home? Or did he plan on finding it upon his arrival? What was going through this mass murderer's mind in the moments leading up to the gruesome axe? 
Or had they been watching the family for some time and knew where to find the oil lamp and axe that they ended up using? Horton was able to determine quickly that the Moore parents had been murdered first, specifically Josiah, the father, and with obvious force. What was even stranger was that either the murderer knew exactly where to locate the adults in the house upon entering, or was hidden in the home already, and emerged from perhaps the attic off the master bedroom closet and stumbled upon them first. Either way, the fact they were able to subdue Josiah and then Sarah was probably the only reason the murders were able to be so complete and kill everybody inside. The axe that had been used to kill them had been swung so high above the murderers' heads that it gouged the ceiling above the bed several times, both in the parents' room and in the children's. Joe alone had been hit with the axe at least 30 times. The faces of both parents as well as the children had been reduced to nothing but an unrecognizable bloody pulp. If you didn't know who lived in the house between all eight bodies, there would be no way to tell. In the end, they were only able to be identified by the names written in the children's Bibles from church the previous night. From the blood splatter and the angle of the gouges in the ceiling, the police in the corner were able to determine that the deadly strikes were made by someone left-handed, or at least wielding the axe in their left hand, a factor that will come back to haunt us later. It was on the floor of the master bedroom where Josiah and Sarah were found that yet another oil lamp was discovered on the floor, also missing its chimney. The first had been found downstairs in the master bedroom where Lena and Ina had been sleeping. In the bedroom just off the master, Horton discovered three more beds, holding a total of four more bodies, all of them small and clearly children. All of the bodies were covered in bloody blankets and jackets. When Horton finally left the house after his initial survey of the scene, he walked right up to Ross, Josiah's brother, and said, My God, Ross, there's someone murdered in every bed. Once the murders were discovered, the news traveled quickly in the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers emerged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. It is said that up to a hundred people traipsed through the house, gawking at the bodies before the Velisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and somewhat secure the scene. The townspeople went as far as to touch and even take things from the crime scene, including a piece of Josiah Moore's skull. By this time, Sarah Stillinger was calling the Moore home again in an attempt to contact her two daughters, whom she still hadn't heard from at this point. Reaching the operator to be connected to the Moore house, the operator informed her, Oh, everyone in that house is dead. The first physician to arrive at the scene of the crime was Dr. J. Clark Cooper. Cooper testified that he was called to the Moore home at approximately 8.15 in the morning of June 10th when Hank Horton entered his office and said, Come with me. According to Cooper, when he asked Horton why, Horton appeared extremely frightened and replied, Joe Moore and all his family were murdered in bed. Cooper accompanied Horton to the house and entered, accompanied by Dr. Hugh, Dr. F.S. Williams, the first to examine the bodies and construct an estimated time of death, and the Presbyterian minister, Reverend Ewing, and Dr. Lindquist, the coroner. Five doctors and a reverend walk into an axe murder house.
Together they constructed a theory for what had happened the night before. Dr. F.S. Williams came outside at one point seeing the circus of people trying to find out what had happened and said, Don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. Walking into the downstairs bedroom first to begin the more formal investigation, they found the bodies of Ina and Lena. According to Cooper, quote, All we could see was an arm of someone sticking out from under the edge of the cover with the blood on the pillows. I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body, some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all, neither did any of the people, the others that were with me, and we merely saw that they were dead. It was determined that Ina had been butchered first in that room, and Lena second. In fact, it was discovered that Lena was the very last to be murdered out of everyone in the house. Ina's face was covered with a little boy's coat, and Lena was found sprawled out in a very strange position. This told investigators that while everyone in the house was likely asleep when the fatal strikes fell, Lena was probably the only one awake and aware of what was happening to her. According to Dr. Williams, when testifying about the discovery of the two girls before a grand jury, quote, From their appearances, one was a big woman and one a little girl, and that the girl out to the side of the bed next to the east side they were in, facing north, she had evidently moved after being struck, or had been moved. The blood was all scattered over the pillows, apparently she had been struck in the head, squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one-third of the way, and left hand was thrown back, sticking up behind the pillow. Her head was all beaten in. He believed from this quote and from her positioning, and where the blood was located, that she had been moved after death. Her position suggests that she was pulled down along the bed after death, forcing her arms to go upwards behind her, and further suggesting that something truly terrible was done to her at that time. She was found halfway down the bed on her right hip, with her upper body rotated to lay flat against the bed, essentially her body twisted. Disturbingly, her underwear was removed and found beneath the bed covered in blood. Investigators believe the cause of the blood was that it was used by the murderer to attempt to clean off the blade of the axe, and then discarded. Her nightgown was pulled up above her waist, with her arms above her head, one arm lodged beneath the pillow. Her legs were spread, and a bloody smear from the murderer's hand was found on her inner thigh. While the doctors were able to prove from further examination that no one in the house had been raped, it was clear Lena was the victim of some form of sexual assault at some point during or after her death. Moving further into the house, they began to examine the wounds on Josiah and Sarah. It was clear Josiah had been brutalized the very most, possibly due to a personal vendetta of sorts from the murderer, but also possibly just to ensure that the biggest threat to the murderer had been sufficiently neutralized. It was also clear Sarah was the only member of the family to be initially struck with the sharp end of the axe, suggesting perhaps the vendetta was against her. The rest had been struck with the dull end likely to ensure that it wouldn't get lodged in the victim's skulls and delay the speed of his blows. 
Josiah was struck so many times and with such force that they caused the gouges into the ceiling as he swung the axe high above his head. In total, Josiah was struck at least thirty times. They also found similar gouges in the ceiling of the children's room as well, painting an even more detailed picture of the killer himself. The ceilings in both the upstairs bedrooms were extremely low, which would cause even a more average-height individual to struggle to swing an axe as high as was necessary without getting it stuck into the ceiling entirely, suggesting that the murderer was small of stature. Aside from the more parents, they also discovered the bodies of their four children. Herman, aged ten, Catherine, nine, Boyd, seven, and Paul, five, in the room across from them their heads broken, crushed, and their brains destroyed and splattered across the surface of their beds. Due to the evidence at the scene, it seems that once the killer initially ended the lives of each member of the household one by one, he then returned to further axe their heads in and faces to ensure they were unrecognizable. Each member of the household had been hit up to 20 times each. This was further clarified by some fascinating and albeit creative early 18th century forensic research. Sarah's shoe was next to the bed on Josiah's side during the initial murder. Blood had clearly saturated all the bed sheets and ran down the sides, filling the shoe itself with blood. But when they found the shoe, it was knocked over, spilling the bloody contents out onto the floor and beginning to cover the side instead. This let investigators know that likely the killer knocked it over later when returning to the bedroom to inflict more damage. Also, it was clear that the wounds on the bodies were in various different stages of coagulation, meaning time had clearly passed between them. After murdering the Moors, the killer had apparently set up some kind of ritual. He had covered the Moor parents' heads with sheets, an undershirt over Herman's face, a dress over Catherine's, and blankets over Boyd and Paul. He then also went through each room in the house, covering all the mirrors and reflective windows with cloths and towels. He also ripped Sarah's skirt in half and used it to cover two different mirrors. Some have suggested that perhaps this was due to some strange psychological aspect of the killer, where he didn't want to see himself in the mirrors. But it also nods to a Victorian funeral tradition— where mirrors were covered while a body was lying in wake within one's house. Superstitions at that time said that if you were to see yourself in the mirror while a body was waiting for burial, that meant that you would be the next to die. Why did the killer take the time to cover them? Next to the axe, sitting on the floor in the room where Lena and Ina were found, a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the fridge lay on the floor wrapped in some form of cheesecloth or dish towel that was clearly removed from the moor's icebox as another was found still inside. The presence of the slab of bacon suggests, perhaps, and most likely, that the killer used it as a form of masturbatory aid over the girl's deceased bodies, especially considering Lena's posed body. Another random piece of a keychain was also found on the floor. A bowl of water was found in the home, spirals of blood swirling through it. Police believed that the murderer had washed his hands in it before leaving. Even a plate of food was found on the table, 
suggesting the killer decided to hang out in the house for several hours before finally deciding to leave before the sun rose, locking all the doors behind him and taking the house key. Had these murders been committed today, it is almost certain that law enforcement officials might have easily solved the crime and brought the murderer to justice. Almost a hundred years later, however, the Velisca Axe murders remain a mystery. The murder or murderers are probably long dead, their gruesome secret buried with them. In hindsight, it's easy to blame the officials at the time for what could have been considered a gross mismanagement of what little evidence may have remained. It's important, however, that we also recognize that in 1912, fingerprinting was a fairly new venture, one not even trusted by most law enforcement officers, and DNA testing unimaginable. It is quite probable that even if the crime scene had been secure, the evidence would not have really provided any real clues. There was no central database of fingerprints, so even if they had been recovered, the murderer would have had to have been apprehended for a comparison. As the investigators examined the rest of the property, they discovered some strange things in the barn behind the house. Bales of hay had been moved and stacked in a strange way, including a small depression at the top where perhaps someone was likely laying for some period of time. Examining the pile further, they discovered a hole cut into the wall of the barn that allowed anyone laying on top of the bales of hay and looking through it to see into most of the windows of the house. Others believe that the killer broke into the home earlier in the day while the family was at church and hid in the attic of the master bedroom and waited to attack in the middle of the night. This theory is further explained by the presence of two unexplained cigarette butts discovered in the attic. But perhaps both could be true. Although the coroner Lindquist called the members of the coroner's jury together in the late afternoon, it was several hours before they actually entered the Moore home to view the bodies, and after 10pm before he and County Attorney Ratcliffe finally gave permission to the undertaker to remove them. The fire station had been set up as a temporary morgue, and it was close to 2am before all the bodies had been transported from the home. Around 9pm, a team of famous bloodhounds from Beatrice were brought in to try and investigate a scent found on the axe, which led them down the street very close to the home of Frank Jones, the rival farm equipment dealer, who we will come to very shortly. They continued then to follow the scent on to the banks of the Nodaway River before losing the trail. Within two days of the discovery of the bodies, the hotels and inns around Velisca were already completely full to capacity from eager tourists looking to investigate the infamous case and visit the tragic site. Hardware stores were sold out of locks, the townspeople were buying guns, and family members were taking turns across the town, staying awake through the night to guard their families. Finally, on June 12th, the family's memorial was held by the town, and the whole village shut down. The mayor even required businesses to close for the day to pay respect to the tragic losses of life. Looking back on the events of the day before, to try and discover some insight into what may have happened, people find it strange that Mary Peckham claimed to have not heard any sounds from the property over the course of the night, despite brutal bludgeoning that left gouges in the ceiling. Meanwhile, the coroner called Edward Landers to testify before the grand jury. 
Mr. Landers was visiting his mother for the summer and was staying just a few houses from the moors. Landers testified that he went to bed shortly after 9 p.m. on Sunday evening. Before he fell asleep, however, he heard a sound that, quote, impressed him and sounded, quote, like one boy hooting for another on the outside somewhere. According to Landers, the sound occurred at regular intervals but didn't connect it with anything and fell asleep shortly thereafter. When pressed to identify a time, Landers settled on approximately 11 p.m. He further testified that, although he didn't think anything of it at the time, the next morning when he heard about the murders, it occurred to him that the sounds may have been a woman moaning. The only strangers Landers admitted to seeing in the area of the Moore home the day before were wallpaper cleaners peddling their services that had stopped by his mother's house at approximately 10.15 Saturday night. Landers could shed no light on what time the Moors may have retired for the evening, and then was dismissed. Married Peckham had been like a grandmother to the Moore children, who would spend time playing at her house often. However, she would pass away only months after the tragic murders, apparently from a nervous breakdown. Her obituary reads, Mrs. Mary Mallory Peckham, wife of Orlando Peckham of this city, died at Bozeman, Montana, Thursday, December 12, 1912, at 10.45 in the morning after a lingering illness. The cause of death is directly attributed to anemia and followed a nervous breakdown which was greatly aggravated by the tragedy in Villisca last June. Mrs. Peckham lived next door to the J.B. Moore family and was the first to surmise that a tragedy had been enacted there. The awful affair so preyed upon her mind that health gradually failed her. On the 3rd of December 1912, Mrs. Peckham was taken to Montana in the hopes that her condition might be ameliorated. Her daughter, Mrs. E.C. Hugh and son E.L. Peckham, said Dr. Hugh accompanied her, but all the loving hands could do was of no avail. She died at the age of 63, 7 months, and 11 days. If you probably couldn't tell, I'm obsessed with creating podcasts. As I've grown as a creator, I needed a hosting and distribution platform that's capable of growing alongside me. So that's why I use Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout has already helped over 100,000 people make, distribute, grow, and monetize their show. You'll get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into other websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Podcasting shouldn't be hard if you work with the right partners, and that's why I love Buzzsprout. Don't wait. Get your message out into the world today by using my affiliate link in the show notes and get a $20 Amazon gift card. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping people like you succeed and achieve all of your podcasting goals. Join the over 100,000 of us already using Buzzsprout to get our message out and watch your show take off. See you out there, creators. 
As for the perpetrator of the Velisca Axe murders, the police had shockingly few leads. A few half-hearted efforts to search the town and surrounding countryside were made, though most officials believed that the roughly five-hour head start the killer had had allowed for him to be long gone. Bloodhounds were brought in, but with no success, as the crime scene had been fully demolished by the townspeople. While no one was ever convicted of the Velisca Axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could read about at least four possibilities in any edition of the newspaper. Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted, and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. Today, historians and those who have studied the axe murders extensively seem to be made up of primarily three camps. One, there were many who believed Frank F. Jones, the prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator, was responsible for the brutal deaths of the Moors and Stillinger children. Two, others adamantly insist that the crazed Reverend George Kelly was the culprit. And three, Still others believe that the Moore murders were the work of someone totally unrelated to the town of Aliska, a possible traveler, hobo, or serial killer. Josiah Moore worked for Frank Jones at the Jones store for almost seven years when he left to open his own implement company in 1908. He was definitely considered to be the most successful businessman in town, a banker, owned a car dealership, and was a state senator. He didn't drink swear and was a devoted Presbyterian, and seen as an extremely upstanding individual in the town. He led quite an impressive life, writing legislature for the insurance practices which are still used today, helped form the Iowa system of transportation, served as a school teacher, sat on the State Board of Education, and was a huge advocate for prison reform and conservation methods to produce less waste. Lots of invaluable philanthropic endeavors, which, if he wasn't guilty of participation in this crime, is extremely disappointing as his name has been smeared over his potential participation in what would occur. Admittedly, according to Velisca residents, Jones was extremely upset that Moore had left his employment and managed to take the very lucrative John Deere franchise with him. The John Deere account single-handedly turned Josiah Moore and his new store into Frank Jones' business nemesis. At the time, Frank and Josiah would cross the street rather than risk passing one another. Now, business rivalry alone should not be enough to suspect Frank of the brutal murder of eight people, six of whom were children. However, there is a little bit more to this picture. Rumor had it that Moore had been having a torrid affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna Bentley, then Donna Jones, the woman married to his son, Albert, and further fanned the flames. Donna was a hot shit, who went on to live until 1984. She had arrived in Villisca some four years earlier, accepting a position as a country school teacher. It was not long before her dark beauty and vivacious manner attracted Albert Jones' attention. It's not so clear what made the slow, portly, ineffectual son of F.F. Jones attractive to her, however. Still, he was the only son and heir of a wealthy and powerful man. Whatever the reason, Donna and Albert were married in February of 1910 at her home in Hollyville, a tiny village southeast of Villisca. The two and one half years between Donna's marriage and the 1912 Villisca axe murders proved to be a strange interlude in her life. She moved quickly into Villisca's upper social class, sponsoring parties and entertainment in her home. 
She was social and popular, but set some tongues wagging by her flirtations and joshing with men. In the parlance of the time, she was thought to be a high-stepper, snappy, and indifferent to public opinion. By 1911, her behavior was a scandal in Villisca. Had it not been for her social position, she would have experienced public censure. Thanks to the young telephone operators, it was common knowledge that she was frequently receiving calls from at least two Villisca gentlemen. Albert Davies, a young insurance agent, called most often, but Josiah B. Moore ran a close second. In fact, judged by the frequency with which Donna said, it's all right to come over now, Joe was the clear frontrunner. His last visit was only just a few days before his untimely murder. Most people might have difficulty believing Albert or F.F. Jones would have hired a killer over their business conflicts with Joe Moore, but to punish Joe for besmirching the family name seemed a bit more reasonable. This is why Donna was a central figure in Detective Wilkerson's case against F.F. Jones. She, with her flippant and disreputable behavior, provided a motive for the Velisca axe murders. Public gossip regarding Donna's reckless behavior reached a climax some four months after the murders. Again, it was the telephone operators who spread the tale. It seems a night operator saw the switchboard light for Albert Jones' telephone flash. When she connected the line, she found no one waiting to make a call, but instead the phone had been knocked off its cradle and she overheard a fight. Albert had apparently come home unexpectedly and caught Donna and Albert Davies in a compromising situation. The telephone operator's ringside seat allowed her to identify the participants by their voices. The fight between the two Alberts ended abruptly when a pistol shot rang out. The next morning, Davies sported a bandaged thumb which the local newspaper attributed to an errant harness ring and a fractious horse but the whole town twittered because everyone had heard what really happened from the telephone girls. Detective James Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency openly accused Frank and his son Albert of hiring William Mansfield to kill Joe Moore. After all, Frank was 57 at the time of the murder, so it was highly unlikely that he would be the one doing the slaying. However, neither Jones was ever arrested, and both denied vehemently any connection to the murders. William Mansfield of Blue Island, Iowa, was the prime suspect of the Burns Detective Agency of Kansas City and Detective James Newton Wilkerson. According to the Wilkerson investigation, the murder of Joe Moore and the other occupants of the Moore home were committed by Mansfield, who was in turn hired by Frank Jones. It took Detective Wilkerson until 1916 to solidify his case against Frank Jones and dropped the bomb on the family during the Republican election, for which Jones was himself running. Wilkerson went as far as to send around pamphlets throughout the town with the picture of the suspected hired gun saying, Do you want to re-elect someone who hired this guy to kill an entire family? Needless to say, Frank lost the re-election over this purported theory. Mansfield was also known as George Worley and or Jack Turnbaugh. According to Wilkerson, Mansfield was an avid cocaine fiend and serial killer. Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his own wife, infant child, father-in-law, and mother-in-law in Blue Island, Illinois on July 5, 1914, only two years after the Villisca murders. 
He also believed him responsible for the axe murders committed in Paola, Kansas, four days after the Bliska murders, and the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. Wilkerson managed to convince a grand jury to open an investigation in 1916, and Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County from Kansas City. Payroll records, however, provided an alibi that placed Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Vliska murders. Veliskins were thunderstruck, and Wilkerson unleashed vitriolic attacks on F.F. Jones and his perception of a lack of justice in Montgomery County. Although grand jury proceedings are secret, he insisted that a majority must have been for indictment, but Jones had used his political influence to sway the results. These attacks culminated in August, when Wilkerson started holding outdoor meetings to rally public opinion against Jones. The first was held in Friar's Pasture, south of town. Wilkerson, who was a stemwinder of a speaker, stood in an open touring car to harangue the crowd. He patted his breast pocket and boasted that he, quote, had the documents to convict Blackie Mansfield of the Moore murders and prove Frank Jones had put up the dirty money to pay for it. When Wilkerson held a second mass meeting in Grant, Iowa, north of Aliska, Frank Jones decided he must act to defend himself. September of 1916, Joes sued Wilkerson for slander, asking for $60,000 in damages. The suit was argued in November and December of 1916. It was one of the most sensational trials in Iowa history. The suit quickly became a trial of Jones for murder, rather than Wilkerson for slander, because Wilkerson admitted saying what he was accused of, but claimed his accusations were true, and you can't slander a man with the truth. The judge's failure to control the huge crowd that filled the courtroom beyond capacity added to the trial's ruckus atmosphere. Wilkerson's case revolved around a series of eyewitnesses, most of whom had not come forward until now. First was Vena Tompkins, who in 1916 was living in Marshalltown, but in 1911 had been camping outside of Villisca while her husband worked on the brick paving of the city's main street, 3rd Avenue. She claimed to have overheard three men talking about money behind the old slaughterhouse just southeast of Villisca during the fall of 1911. She thought one of the men, quote, resembled Frank Jones, but she could not swear it was him. The star witness was Alice Willard. Alice was divorced and living with her father, Mr. Holland, just a block south of Joe Moore's house in 1912. One Saturday evening, June 8th, she saw two strangers walk by the Moore house. Later that night, she claimed to be walking behind the Moore house when she saw three men approaching from the south. To hide herself, she crouched down in a plum thicket. As the men approached, Alice recognized two as the Saturday morning strangers. They were met by two other men coming from the west. Alice identified these two as Frank Jones and a local pool hall operator, Bert McCall. Willard said that the five men met just in front of the plum thicket where she was hiding. Alice couldn't hear what they were saying, but she claimed to have heard the phrase, Get Joe first, and the rest will be easy. It should be noted, however, that throughout this described encounter, she claimed to be in the company of a traveling salesman named Ed McRae. Conveniently enough for her, 
Alice claimed that Ed McRae was dead by 1916, and thus unable to step forward and testify himself, but authorities failed to locate any record of him either dead or alive. The third witness was Ed Landers, a Shenandoah insurance salesman. Ed and his family were staying with his mother just across the street, east and up the block north from the murder house in June of 1912. Even though he had testified to the coroner's inquest that nothing unusual had happened the Sunday night of the murder, he now insisted that as he and his wife walked past Joe's house at about 8.15 Sunday night, a man, just a few steps ahead of them, turned and walked right into Joe's house. Ed identified the man as Albert Jones. According to Wilkerson's investigation, all of the murders were committed in precisely the same manner, indicating that the same man committed them. Wilkerson stated that he could prove that Mansfield was present in each of these places on the night of each of the murders. In each murder, the victims were hacked to death with an axe, and the mirrors in the homes were covered. A burning lamp with the chimney off was left at the foot of the bed, and a basin in which the murderer washed was found in the kitchen. In each case, the murderer avoided leaving fingerprints by wearing gloves, which Wilkerson believed was strong evidence that the man was Mansfield, who knew his fingerprints were on file at the Federal Military Prison at Leavenworth. However, as time went on, Wilkerson's reputation became extremely damaged, and his reliability was completely compromised, so on the other hand, we kinda can't trust anything that we've just covered. He was known to frame innocent people in order to profit from the rewards and undertable dealings of these cases. Nonetheless, Frank Jones is, and will likely always continue to be, a prime suspect in this case. Considered by many to be one of the most likely suspects in the Axe murders was Reverend George Kelly, a traveling preacher. Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly was an English immigrant who had a history of sexual deviancy and mental health problems, including suspected schizophrenia. Kelly and his wife settled in Macedonia, Iowa, about 40 miles away, in 1912 after several years of preaching throughout the Midwest. Though his small stature, standing at 5'2 and 119 pounds, and meek personality led some to doubt his involvement, there were certainly factors the police believed made him the perfect candidate. For starters, Kelly was left-handed, which the police determined from blood spatters that the killer must be. The night of the murders, Reverend Kelly had been in Villisca. In fact, he had been visibly in attendance at the Children's Day activities at the Presbyterian Church, at which the entire Moore family, as well as Lena and Ina Stillinger, was present. He also admitted to leaving town before dawn on a train out of Aliska around 5.20 a.m. and spoke to an elderly couple that stated they remembered him, and he asked them if they had heard about the horrible axe murders in Villisca yet. However, the bodies wouldn't even be found for several more hours. Two days before the murders, he was also caught by a husband peeking in windows throughout Villisca as he was known to be a peeping Tom. A dry cleaner in his hometown of Macedonia had received bloody clothing from Kelly a few days after the murders. A week later, he returned to Villisca and was reportedly absolutely obsessed with the crime. He even asked police for access to the home while posing as a Scotland Yard officer. And it worked. 
They led him into the crime scene and even gave him a personal tour. Some suggest he was attempting to live out the murder again. He continued to hound the investigators, claiming to have known what had happened. Kelly's detailed knowledge of the crime undoubtedly arose to suspicion. However, because of Kelly's position in the church and history of mental illness, authorities were skeptical about whether Kelly was in fact responsible and thus did not take him into custody. While Kelly escaped charges for the Velisca murders, Kelly was unable to avoid legal trouble later in life. In 1914, Kelly branched out from the preaching profession and began his career as a shorthand reporter. To assist him with his reporting work, Kelly placed an ad in the paper for a secretary. When a young woman responded to the ad, Kelly informed her that the job required her to type in the nude. The woman took Kelly's letter to her pastor, who turned the letter over to authorities. Kelly was ultimately arrested for attempting to solicit obscene material through the mail. Kelly was convicted of this crime and later transferred to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where he underwent therapy. While at the hospital, Kelly expressed fear that he would be arrested for the Velisca Axe murders. Throughout the years, authorities had been gathering evidence to build up their case against Kelly. At the time they opened their investigation, they had four pieces of evidence against him. First, Kelly's obsessive behavior regarding the crimes and history of harassment made him a prime suspect in the murders. Second, he allegedly took a bloody shirt to the cleaners shortly after the murders occurred with no explanation. Third, Kelly knew specific details regarding the murders, again with no explanation. Lastly, and possibly most incriminating, authorities had a confession from Kelly where he admitted to committing the murders. With this evidence, authorities were seemingly on the brink of achieving some finality and hopefully closure to the Velisca Axe murders. Despite the seemingly damning evidence, the trial of George Kelly was not an open and shut case. Although a confession is normally a clear indicator of guilt, the circumstances under which the confession was obtained made the jurors question its validity. The interrogation of Reverend George Kelly began in the afternoon and continued well into the night. Kelly was interrogated by multiple investigators for hours on end. Throughout the interrogation, Kelly was allowed periodic breaks where he was allowed to return to his cell, which he shared with two undercover investigators posing as fellow inmates. During Kelly's interrogation breaks, the undercover investigator spoke with Kelly, falsely stating that they were treated better once they confessed to the crimes for which they were accused. The investigator's brutal interrogation tactics, paired with the misleading advice provided by the undercover detectives, resulted in Kelly breaking down and providing his confession the following morning. Because of the very apparent coercive nature in which Kelly's confessions was obtained, jurors did not believe the confession confirmed Kelly's liability for the murders. After deliberation, jurors in the trial against George Kelly were at first a hung jury for the first trial, 11 to 1 for acquittal, and then fully acquitted him of the charges during the second. His confession, coerced or true, remains bizarre to this day. He claims to have had insomnia the night of the murders and went for a walk to the nearby Presbyterian church. While alone in the church, a voice in his head told him, go further. 
Leaving the church, he followed the voice to the end of the street, where a shadow figure beckoned him to follow. The large shadow led him to the rear of the Moore home, where he found the axe laying atop a rubbish heap. The voice continued, Well, go on. Follow the shadow. Slay utterly. I killed the children upstairs first, and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. God whispered to me, Suffer the little children to come unto me. After this, he claimed to have been obsessed with the quote from Ezekiel that was shared at the beginning of this episode, Slay Utterly, and he claims to have suffered and struggled to not slay throughout the rest of his life. He went on to recant his confession, citing police brutality and coercion, and he was acquitted of any wrongdoing. There existed a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work, and Wilkerson's case against Mansfield actually suggested the same. M.W. McClowry, a federal officer assigned to the Velisca case, actually announced in May of 1913 that he had solved not only the Velisca murders, but 22 others that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time frame. McClowry's theory was that Henry Moore, of no relation to Josiah Moore, was the serial killer responsible for all the crimes. Henry Moore was actually convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just months after the murders in Villisca. Moore's family members were killed just as brutally as the victims in Villisca, and his weapon of choice was an axe. Henry Lee Moore was born November 1, 1874 in Boone County, Missouri. He was the eldest son of Enoch and Georgia Ann Wilson Moore. There were three other sons born to the couple, too. Henry's father was a farmer and served in the Civil War. His mother was a nurse. Two of Henry's brothers, Tilden and Turner Moore, as well as his father, passed away before 1910. Henry's remaining brother, Charles, died in 1960 in Stockton, California. Charles left the area prior to the deaths of his mother and grandmother and did not return for the trial. It was unknown whether or not he was aware of the situation. In 1900, Henry was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa, and working as a farmhand. It is suspected that Henry may have fathered a child with the young daughter of the farmer. Henry was sentenced to the Kansas State Reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas, on a forgery charge and was released on April 11, 1911. The murders in Colorado Springs occurred in September of the same year, another murder of which he was suspected to be the perpetrator. Testimony during Henry's trial indicated that he had lived with his mother and grandmother during the winter of 1911 and the summer of 1912. He left to take a job on the railroad. Henry Lee Moore served 36 years of a life sentence before being paroled by the governor of Missouri on December 2, 1949. The governor commuted his sentence on July 30, 1956. Henry Moore was 82 years old and had been living at the Salvation Army Center in St. Louis. It was unknown when he died or where he was living at the time. During the Velisca investigation, other axe murders came into light, 
Just nine months before the crime in Villisca, H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, and Mrs. A.J. Burnham and her two children were bludgeoned with an axe in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the previously mentioned crime. A month later, in October of 1911, a family was killed in Monmouth, Illinois, and just a week later, five members of a family in Ellsworth, Kansas, were murdered as they slept. Just a week before the killing of the Moors and Stillingers in Villisca, a man and his wife were killed in Paola, Kansas. The similarities in the crimes are striking. McClowry received information about Moore's conviction from his father, who was the warden of the Leavenworth, Kansas Federal Penitentiary. It was his belief that Mr. Henry Moore had committed all of the previously described murders. For whatever reason, McClowry's announcement went largely ignored, and to our knowledge, Henry Moore was not convicted of any other crimes. Every hobo, transient, and otherwise unaccounted-for stranger was also a suspect in the axe murders. One such suspect was a man named Andy Sawyer. As with many other suspects, no real evidence linked Mr. Sawyer to the crime. However, his name came up often in the grand jury testimonies. According to Thomas Dyer of Burlington, Iowa, a bridge foreman and pile driver for the Burlington Railroad, Andy Sawyer approached his crew in Creston at 6 a.m. on the morning the murders were discovered. Mr. Sawyer was clean-shaven and wearing a brown suit when he arrived at the scene. His shoes were covered in mud and his pants were wet nearly to the knees. He asked for employment and as Mr. Dyer needed an extra man, he was given a job on the spot. Mr. Dyer testified that later that evening, when the crew hit Fontel, Iowa, Mr. Sawyer purchased a newspaper and went off by himself to read. The newspaper carried a front-page account of the Vliska murders, and, according to Dyer, Sawyer was, quote, very much interested in it. Dyer's crew complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on and was anxious to be by himself. They were also uneasy about the fact that Sawyer slept with his axe and often talked of the Velisca murders and whether or not a killer had been apprehended. He apparently told Dyer personally that he had been in Velisca that Sunday night and had heard of the murders and was afraid he may be a suspect, which is why he left and showed up in Creston. Dyer was suspicious and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18th of 1912. Prior to the sheriff arriving, Dyer testified that he walked up behind Sawyer, and he was rubbing his head with both hands, and all of a sudden jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off. At the same time, he made striking motions with the axe and began hitting the piles in front of him. Dyer's son, J.R., also testified that one day, as the crew drove through Villisca, Sawyer told him he would show him where the man that killed the Moore family got out of town. He said the man that did the job jumped over a manure box, which he pointed out about one and a half blocks away, and then showed where he crossed the railroad track, and there were footprints in the soggy ground north of the embankment. Sawyer, however, was apparently dismissed as a suspect in the case when it was discovered that he was able to prove he'd been in Osceola, Iowa, on the night of the murders. He had been arrested for vagrancy, and the Osceola sheriff recalled putting him on a train at approximately 11 p.m. that evening. The Man from the Train is a 2017 true crime book written by Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James. In The Man from the Train, the authors claim to have discovered the real identity and existence of a previously overlooked serial killer active in the late 1800s and early 1900s. According to the authors, this criminal was named Paul Mueller, 
who operated throughout North America and killed between 40 to 100 people. Mueller's name was apparently linked to only one crime in contemporary media. He was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family near West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. According to Rachel McCarthy James, she and her father unearthed, quote, probably 500 words of material about Mueller, specifically his physical appearance, where he's from, his skills, and his family. Mueller was about 35 years old in 1897, reportedly claimed to be a German military veteran, and was known as a skilled carpenter who spoke very little English. He was described as short and muscular in stature, with unusually small and widely spaced teeth, his most distinctive feature. Mueller is believed to most likely have worked as an itinerant lumberjack, given his woodworking skills, the killer's use of an axe, and the fact that most of the murders occurred in or near logging areas. The Jameses point out that in these times, local police usually assumed a local murderer with some connection to the victims. The concept of a nationwide traveling serial killer was never even considered in most cases, and this led to a serial murderer probably being missed. Policed investigative methods and technology were extremely primitive compared to a few decades later. For example, neither fingerprints nor blood typing were in use, and crime scenes were often compromised by curious onlookers, just like in Villisca. Locals arrested after police investigation were usually released on a lack of evidence, or after the suspect had strong alibis. But a few suspects were convicted and executed or lynched, in the case of several African-American suspects. According to the Jameses, a number of murders in the period which were assumed by local police to be one-off incidents were actually committed by a single person, probably Mueller, based on certain similarities among these cases. These similarities include the scene being within a few hundred feet of a railroad junction, thus the book's title, the slaughter of entire families in small towns with little or no police force, the families having a barn where the killer was believed to have hidden to observe the families, the families having no dog to warn of an intruder, the killer using a blunt edge of an axe as a murder weapon, the killer leaving the axe in plain sight, the killer covering victims with sheets or blankets prior, probably to prevent blood splatter. The killer moving or stacking bodies after the murders. The killer covering windows from inside the house with sheets or towels. And the absence of a robbery. In early cases, the killer often attempted arson to destroy the house, but gradually abandoned the practice, possibly because it quickly brought attention to the scene. A killer, or killers, known as the Axemen of New Orleans, was active in 1918 and 1919, but the authors believe these crimes are unconnected to Mueller, due to different characteristics at the crime scenes. The killer's primary motive is believed to have been a sadistic sexual attraction to prepubescent girls, factoring in a majority of the killings. While adults were typically ambushed and murdered in bed while sleeping, Girls often showed defensive wounds or other signs of a struggle. Media reports of the crimes often included veiled references to the killer having ejaculated at the crime scenes or his having molested the girls after death. The presence of a slab of bacon at the Velisca scene, possibly used as a masturbation aid, may bolster this theory according to the authors. 
Bill James noted that nationwide from 1890 to 1912, there was an average of eight murdered families per year, most of which do not share the characteristics reported in media for the crimes attributed to Mueller. A lack of such crimes anywhere in the nation for about a year in 1908 led the James to speculate that the killer was apprehended and imprisoned for a minor crime. The Jameses described themselves as feeling certain that Mueller committed 14 family murders, totaling 59 victims, and less certain to varying degrees of his involvement in another 25 murders, totaling an additional 94 victims. If accurate, these totals would place Mueller, the man from the train, either just behind or ahead of Samuel Little, the American serial killer with the most confirmed victims, who was convicted of 60 murders and claimed 93. The authors also suggest that Mueller may have been responsible for the 1922 Hinterkaifeck murders in Germany. The murders bear some similarities to the U.S. crimes, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home, the bodies being moved after the killings, a young girl among the victims, use of the blunt edge of a farm tool as a weapon, a pickaxe in this case, and the apparent absence of robbery as a motive. The authors suspect that Mueller, described as a German immigrant in contemporary media, might have departed the U.S. for his homeland after private investigators and journalists began to notice and publicize patterns in family murders across state lines. Due in part to improved communication technology, observers increasingly noted similarities between the crimes. Nationwide attention came following the brazen 1911 murder of two families on a single night in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and a similar family murder weeks afterward a few hundred miles away in neighboring Kansas. By the 1912 Aliska murders, it was widely suspected a single traveling assailant might be to blame, although the term serial killer was not used until decades later. For years, police looked into every possible scenario that could have accumulated in the Velisca Axe murders. Was it a single attack, or part of a larger string of murders? Was it likelier to be a local perpetrator or a traveling killer, simply passing through town and taking an opportunity. Soon, reports of similar enough crimes happening throughout the country began to pop up. Though the crimes were not quite as gruesome, there were two common threads. The use of an axe as the murder weapon, and the presence of an oil lamp set to burn extremely low at the scene. Despite the commonalities, however, no actual connections could be made. The case eventually ran cold, and the house was boarded up. Now, today, the house has become a tourist attraction and sits at the end of a quiet street as it always has, while life goes on around it, undeterred by the horrors that were once committed within. Since the night of the murders, the Axe Murder House has been owned by seven different individuals, including Darwin and Martha Lynn, who carefully restored the property to its original state in 1994. They had no idea how popular this restoration would be. Today, you can stay in the property overnight for about $425. Naturally, a house with such a dark and mysterious past quickly attracted rumors of a haunting. The house was lived in for years after the murder, although families never stayed for long. From what I can tell, there's not a ghostly phenomena that hasn't been reported in the house disembodied footsteps, items moving unexplained, 
voices, apparitions, shadows, and increasingly bad energy. You name it, the Velisca Axe Murder House has it. It's been on basically every ghost hunting show, from ghost adventures to scariest places on Earth, and all of the essential spooky podcasts, including Lore and My Favorite Murder. Since that night in 1912, several people have reported seeing paranormal activity in the house. In 1930, newlyweds Bonnie and Homer Rittner rented the house for a short time. That is, until Bonnie told her new husband that she saw the image of a man with an axe standing at the end of the bed. Another couple who purchased the home reported seeing a door open and close by itself. Later, neighbors reported hearing a noise around 3 a.m., and looked out to see the couple running down the street in their nightclothes. Years later, two young girls living in the house told their parents they heard the sounds of children sobbing and crying in the night. The father didn't believe it until one evening, while sitting at the kitchen table sharpening his pocket knife, the knife suddenly flew out of his hands. He packed up his family and left that night. Darwin Lynn purchased the house in 1994 and, as we said, began restoring it to its original condition. In 1997, the Iowa Historic Preservation Alliance awarded Lynn and the house the, quote, Preservation at its Best Award, and a year later, the Moore home was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Lynn said he knows the spirits of the Moore family are still in the house, quote, the balls in the kids' room roll around and the doors open and bang by themselves. He said on one occasion, those spirits let him know they didn't like something. Quote, one time I was upstairs and picked up a handful of quarters off the bed. People were putting money around and then they'd go back and see if it had been moved. I started down the stairs and I had the money in my hand. About halfway down, the closet door went bang, bang, bang. I stopped and turned around and thought, I'll just put this in the sugar bowl. Although he's the owner of the Axe Murder House, Lynn said he's not the boss. Quote, I own the house, but I still think Sarah Moore is in charge. And I get a good feeling when I say that. It's still their home. One of the most infamous paranormal experiences at the Velisca Axe Murder House occurred in November of 2014 when a visitor to the world-renowned Velisca Axe Murder House was rushed to a nearby hospital. The visitor was a well-known paranormal investigator who wanted to attempt an experiment. Robert Stephen Larson Jr., 37 years old, of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, arrived with his mother and stepmother for a recreational paranormal investigation, according to Montgomery County Sheriff Joe Sampson. Quote, From my understanding, he was alone in the northwest bedroom, and the rest of the party was outside monitoring his activities. In his experiment, he recreated the scene exactly as it was on the night of the murders, covering all the windows and mirrors, leaving out a slab of bacon in a bowl of bloody water to see how the location would react. The only thing Robert didn't have with him that night was an axe, so instead he made do with a knife. He laid down in one of the beds in the downstairs bedroom with the knife held firmly in his right hand. Once there, he began to call out aggressively to the spirit of the killer he believed remained on the property in the darkness. He hurled horrendous insults and names at the spirit before he noticed something strange. The last thing he remembered 
was noticing a strange light anomaly emerging from one of the closets before rushing straight at him. When he came to, the knife he had been holding was buried deep in his shoulder. His injuries were severe, so severe in fact that he was life-lighted to one of the nearby hospitals where he was coded due to blood loss, but somehow survived. The recording that was captured on EVP during the moment of this incident was so distressing to his family that they immediately destroyed it. To this day, the police state that his wounds were self-inflicted, but he adamantly disagrees, stating that the knife was found at an angle in his shoulder that would be impossible for him to do himself. Not to mention he was right-handed anyway, and had the knife in his right hand. You imagine trying to touch your right shoulder with your right hand, with enough force to bury a knife in it. Not as easy as it sounds, is it? June of 2022 marked the 100-year anniversary of the Velisca Axe murders, widely regarded as one of America's most well-known and infamous mass murders, and certainly one of the most perplexing. Over a century later, we still have no idea as to who perpetrated these crimes or why, and more than likely, we never will. However, the voice of the Velisca Axe Murder House still calls out to the curious and disgusted alike, conjuring a legend that has fascinated researchers like myself and challenged the dedicated to try and pick through the scattered details desperate to make some sense of this seemingly senseless act and find in its breadcrumbs some sliver of resolution and closure. But maybe the facts of this case should remain of far less value than the humanity that was lost to it. Josiah, Sarah, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, Paul, Lena, and Ina. Who could they have been? What could they have created or achieved? What might have been before their innocent lives were brutally butchered and stomped out? I look forward to the day I too can visit the Velisca Axe Murder House, not in morbid curiosity like the townsfolk traipsing through on that warm June morning, but to get the chance, even for a moment, to experience the last place their souls occupied this world in human form pay respect to their heartbreaking endings and see if my soul can hear their faint whispers. This has been When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, Season 3, Episode 5, 
Slay utterly the Velisca axe murders. As always, please visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com to learn much more about the show and follow us on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces. If you enjoyed the soundtrack of this episode and every episode here on the podcast, please find my link to join Artlist, the best royalty-free platform in the business. That's all for now, and I'll catch you next time.